Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Hey, good morning. We really need some more people up here. Okay, it's just a hole right here. Too close to me? That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. That's my wife. She feels the same way, quite honestly. Hey, my name is Mike, and if you're new to our community, I want to welcome you. Um, if you were to ask, like, hey, we get asked this every now and again, what is, what is Journey about, or what's, like, your five-year plan? A, we don't have a five-year plan, but we could tell you what we're about, and we are about hospitality. We think the picture of Jesus eating with diverse groups of people all throughout the Gospels is a picture of how the church should relate to the world around it today, particularly when so much of our time and effort is spent being polarized and demonizing each other. We just think sharing a meal together with no agenda is like one of the most radical things you can do. And so we extend hospitality in a number of different ways. That's one. Room in the end, that's one. We also do something called the table that Mark referenced. That is the first Monday of every, first Sunday of every month. We uh, have host homes that open up their homes to families or to, to small groups. And we provide food and we sit around a table and we eat and get to know each other with no agenda. And that has been a great blessing to our church as, as it knits us together in ways, because very often we don't get to like show up to things where we don't choose all the people involved. And so it's a great way to train us to like embody the new humanity that Jesus talks about, which is a diverse group of people hanging out together. The third way we are going to um, extend hospitality is, uh, guys, there's candy on the horizon. Would you agree? There is much candy on the horizon. And, um, and I don't know. I mean, let me just, just take a poll, just take a quick survey. Uh, if you had one treat that you could draft for yourself, what, what candy would it be? And, and how come it's all Reese's peanut butter cups? All right, everybody, is it, can I get an amen? Now, Snickers, you wouldn't like her when she's hangry. That's a Snickers commercial, um, but a reality in our household too. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I want to invite you to something called trunk or treat. If you have a car, and most of you have a car, um, we want you to decorate that car. We want you to fill it with the candy of your choice, and then what we're going to do is not only as a family together, but we're going to be partnering with a ministry called Capernaum, which is a ministry to special needs kids and families, uh, and, and we're just going to throw a little trunk or treat party for them. So you got this here. This is, this is a paper reminder, guys. I know you can put it on your Google calendar, but, or you could take this and be reminded that it's October 30th. All right. Now, we are in the middle of a series of conversations. Oh, who carried that up? Thank you. We are in the middle of a series of conversations on the big, scary book of Revelation. If you're new to our community, uh, we've been in this about a month, and um, one of the things that is interesting about the book of Revelation is that the book itself tells us how we should understand it. The book comes to us in the form of a circular, circular letter to seven flesh and blood churches. And circular letters, 
meant that you would understand. If you were the original audience, you would have understood the imagery in the book of Revelation. You don't have to wait 2,000 years for the European Union to arrive before you could understand the book. Second thing is it comes to us in the form of a prophecy. And the point of prophecy in the Old Testament was not predicting the future, but it was to call people to faithfulness today. And, and so too in the book of Revelation. It's not a calendar of future events. It's designed to give us heaven's perspective on, de, de, uh, on propaganda in our world that uh, invites us to leave allegiance to Jesus for something else. It is an invitation to fidelity to Christ in very tangible ways. And then thirdly, the letter is in the form of an apocalyptic, uh, in the form of apocalyptic literature, uh, which was very common in the time of Jesus, but uses lots of symbolism. The, the letter isn't meant to be read as a calendar, you know, with um, um, taking every symbol exactly literally. We read the book literarily, which means we read the book as the book is supposed to be read. And the book tells us that there are loads of symbols involved. Now, that's all review, but those are some of the assumptions that we carry into our understanding of Revelation. Revelation is also, this is all review, in dialogue with two streams of thought. First stream of thought is it's in dialogue with the Old Testament. There are 400 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. It's one of the reasons why the book's really confusing to us, because we're not really huge fans of the Old Testament, or at least not familiar with it. And then what it's doing is it's taking the New Testament imagery that was around Yahweh and Yahweh's people, and now applying it to Jesus and his followers. The second stream of conversation that the book of Revelation is in concert with is what we're going to look at today, and that was Roman imperial propaganda. Two weeks ago, we introduced a guy named Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus became the first emperor of Rome, and there that started um, a movement in the cities where Revelation was written to, to sort of acclaim and provide div divine names and titles to whoever the current Caesar was. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to meet the Caesar that was um, in power when Revelation was written. So we have some text we've got to get through and some pictures to show. And then we're going to go to Revelation chapter 5 and we're going to read that text in light of what it is that we just learned. All right? Awesome. That's right. There, there are a few of us who actually tolerate this. Um, if you have questions, we have a text line, and please feel free to text questions as you go. You could also uh, ask if you need to, um, and I'll let me get through some material, and then I'll say, hey, any questions? And we just love having a great big conversation where we get to learn from each other. So let's meet the Emperor Domitian, ladies and gentlemen. Boom, there he is. That's a younger version. Domitian was in power from what was it, 81 to 96 AD. Domitian is the youngest son of the Emperor Vespasian, who had a, he had an older brother named Titus. So the Flavian dynasty, it was Vespasian, Titus, and then our friend Domitian. They ruled for about 30 years or so. Domitian um, started out as a really capable administrator. He, he finished the Colosseum in Rome. He had extensive building projects. He really knew how to take care of the Roman military, so they were fans of him. But the last three years of his reign were called the Reign of Terror, where I don't know if he went insane, he got sick, or he was just so suspicious and jealous. He just kind of went off the deep end and was ultimately assassinated at the end of that. 
and some of the things he would do, and, and, and again, the emperors were such a mixed bag in terms of uh, competence or insanity. Um, in this case, Domitian had a, a child actor executed because the child looked like an actor that Domitian despised. Um, this is a guy who murdered his own cousin, put to death the governor of Asia, and really curtailed the power of the Senate and assassinated senators. So he wasn't super popular towards the end of his reign. Now, we get images of Domitian, go ahead, Sarah, all throughout uh, Asia Minor, uh, and one of the most popular is Domitian holding, what do you think that is in his right hand? A stick? A bag of candy? No. That, thank you. Thank you, very intelligent ladies up here. It's a scroll. Now, I only point that out because perhaps we're going to meet somebody in Revelation 5 who has a scroll in his right hand too. But I just want you to see that one of the images floating around the Roman Empire when Revelation was written was a guy holding a scroll, and that scroll claimed that he had authority over the way that history should go. All right? And this was Domitian. Domitian demanded to be called the Lord and God. He was one of the very first emperors to really intensify pressure to deify him while he was alive. All right, next slide. Domitian's child died uh, prematurely, and these coins were minted. So when Jesus talks about a denarius in the temple, this is what a denarius would look like. It's, it's, uh, coins were always propaganda. This is how you met the emperor. You never saw the emperor. You'd meet the emperor in inscriptions or in statues or in coins. This particular coin was minted in honor of the, his child that had died. On the left is his wife, Domita, and on the right is his, uh, is his son, who is seated like Apollo over the earth with seven stars in his hands. And we meet somebody named Jesus in Revelation 1 who has seven stars in his hands. And it's like, huh, well, that's, that's a fascinating coincidence. Right? So Revelation is aware of all of the stuff floating around about this person. One of the things that Domitian did is that he, um, he initiated an Ephesus, a temple to be built, um, that was um, the third, I think, imperial temple in Ephesus. And remember, Ephesus is one of the cities where Revelation was written to. This is a three-story temple. It looks bigger than it was, but you see all those holes on the side? In those holes would be statues of gods and goddesses, and then notice that statue up top on the kind of the flat part, that's Domitian. So Domitian was standing over all of the gods and goddesses, and it was thought he was called the father of the gods. So he had a bit of a, he had some self-esteem, let's just put it that way. All right, so at this temple, this became the, the national, like, world headquarters of Domitian worship. And this was in one of the cities where Revelation was written to. Now, let's show, up a, show a slide. This is Domitian. This is part of the statue that remains. There he is. Very handsome fellow. Um, and, and his hand. And so there you go. Now, you can go to visit uh, the, the remains of the temple. Next slide. This is what it looks like today. Or I can just save you a bunch of money, and you can just say, yeah, there it is. There it is. But I want you to understand that for, for Domitian, 
the worship of him and his deification was central to his self-understanding, right? And this wasn't true of all the emperors, but this was true of some of them, but Domitian really intensified it. And so the idea that you could go to Ephesus, where Revelation, one of the cities where Revelation was written, and dominating the landscape was Domitian worship. Next slide, if you would, Sarah. At his temple, now these are, I'm just quoting from different historians, priests prostrated themselves before the emperor's image. Individual priests dressed in what? Right, do we meet anyone dressed in white in Revelation? Oh, yes. With wreaths on their heads, cast ears of corn into flaming censers. Now, I don't, I, it can't be the same corn that us Midwesterners are fans of because they didn't have it. So I don't know what exactly that was. And they approached the altars of their cities with sacrificial bowls. Music of flutes and harps overwhelmed the senses and smoke would fill the temple. Next, once a year, there was a 35-foot statue of Domitian that would come out of the sea into the harbor in Ephesus, and it would proceed in a sacred procession, usually on the emperor's birthday, where the city, the, the city officials would come out dressed in white, throw crowns down in front of the image, and then they would sing, next, uh, the statue would be rolled out, and they would cry out, our Lord, our God, you alone are worthy of praise and glory and power. Now that phrase, you are worthy of praise and glory and power, we're gonna read in just a little bit. Next. One of the things Domitian did once he established the temple is he threw himself something called the Domitian Games. It was a version of the Olympics that happened every four years, and we have a, a, a sculpture that has different reliefs on it, that tells us a little bit about what the games consisted of. Even though the sculpture is 200 years after Domitian, the historian's arguing it's a fair representation of what the games would consist of, all right? Now, I know this is fascinating to 50% of you. Um, give me 10 more minutes and then relevance is on the horizon. Sound good? The emperor uh, would always appear in the imperial box carrying the wreath of victory in his right hand. The and he would come to the acclamations of the people, which were supported by choirs and harps and singers. Next. The emperor is shown enthroned in the imperial box, holding what? A scroll with the conquered barbarians prostrate before him with their offerings. Next. Once more, accompanied to the victory hymns. And we're gonna meet a couple of victory hymns here in a second. Other reliefs show the emperor motionless on his divine throne, the hand uh, with the scroll resting on his lap, and below his throne, the master of ceremonies who gives the signal for the games to officially begin. And notice the last relief shows the arena with four horses of four different colors starting the games. We're gonna meet four horsemen here in next chapter. And the historian says the representation is late, but we think this is representative of what the games would have been like. Now that is chock full of imagery that we're about to encounter. Next slide. You guys okay? There were bowls of incense that, the, that the you would use, or there were bowls where like libations would be poured out. We're gonna meet those. 
Um, Domitian also ordered that 24 elders or 24 priests dressed in white would accompany him at all times, and they would be chanting, next slide, um, worthy is Caesar and most worthy to be praised. It sounds like that would make a great song title. Um, next, thank you, Cam, for laughing at that. In Ephesus, there was a huge marketplace, world famous, called the Agora. We read, we have a letter from Domitian that talks about the necessity of a permit that would be given so that you could buy and sell. All right? It was a certificate. And once a year, you were invited to pinch, take a pinch of incense and burn it to Caesar as a declaration of his lordship. And you would be given a certificate that said you had done so and then you, were, you had permission to buy and sell. We have an example of a certificate like this. To those who have been appointed to preside over the sacrifices, so that you would go and you would write out this part to, to the emperor representatives, to you, from me, that name and that name, and from the village of that, together with my children, them, who reside in the village of that. We have always sacrificed to the gods, and now in your presence, according to the regulations, we have sacrificed, offered libations, and tasted the sacred things. We ask you to give us a certification that we have done so. And then the certificate that you would receive said, we, the representatives of the emperor, have seen you sacrificing. So there, there is some, and we don't know this for sure, but there is some thought that the mark that we read later that's required for buying and selling could have been something like this. Not sure. Next. Here are just some examples of things that were sung to Domitian. Um, people along parade routes would cry out, hail, hail to the Lord, would cry out, hail to the Lord. We can skip that one, Sarah. I could feel the energy of people dying. <laughs> when Caesar would parade by, next slide. When Caesar would parade by, the poets would cry out, Lord of lords, highest of the high, Lord of the earth, God of all things. Next. Suetonius, Roman historian, tells us that Domitian would begin his letters saying, the Lord our God commands. There's even some, I, I've read a couple of historians who said that Caesar um, made his wife call him Lord and Master. And I thought that sounds like a great idea. So, <laughs> Justina, <laughs> she said, yeah, nice try. Um, or he would use like Domitian the Worshipful as a title for himself next. This is one of the hymns that would be sung. Great are you, our Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive honor and power and glory. Worthy are you, Lord of the earth, to inherit the kingdom. Lord of lords, highest of the high, Lord of earth, God of all things, Lord God and Savior for eternity. So did this guy have an ego? Oh, yes. But I want us just to get a feel for you're, you're in a little bitty house church of 12 to 20 people. You're sitting in a city of 200,000 people. You are politically vulnerable, and you're beginning to experience persecution. And this is what you're surrounded by. This is normal. 
to everybody else in the empire. One of the things that Domitian became so hated by the Roman Senate, when he died, they actually just trucked him, his body into the streets and burned it. And then they, they, there is this, I love this ceremony, it's called the Ceremony of Condemnation. And they issued a decree that every reference to Domitian be struck throughout the empire. In fact, we have, we have um, an inscription where on the third line you can see they like chiseled out his name. And so you could still, I mean, so Domitian ended poorly, let's just say that. As he was assassinated, this is where he ended up. All right, makes sense so far. So imagine that you're in a house church of 12 to 20 people. You have been following Jesus, uh, Jesus, who'd been crucified by the same Roman imperial government. And you're wondering how in the world are we going to handle being among all of this? And then you get a letter from a guy named John. And in chapter five, this is what John says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a what? A scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. Evidently scrolls, you would, you would wrap string around them seven times and you would put it like a wax seal over the knots. And this was very common. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy, there's that word, worthy, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And then I love this, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. So we have a direct reference to the unworthiness of the emperor Domitian. I love it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. And then one of the elders, the 24 elders, came to me said, do not weep, and we introduced this concept last week. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, the root of David, Isaiah 11, has triumphed. Genesis and Isaiah are both militaristic, victorious images of conquering. So yes, we've won. Let's look and see our king. And then I saw, he says, verse six, a lamb looking as if it had been slain. This is Exodus 12, the Passover lamb. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb had seven horns. Horns in Revelation means power, and seven means perfection or completion. He had seven eyes, so he had wisdom, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. No idea what that means. <laughs> He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures, and how many elders? 24 fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp used in imperial liturgies, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which in the heavenly realm, instead of holding libations for Caesar, these are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, and then notice how central the idea of worthy is. You are worthy 
Jesus, to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. That's from Exodus 19, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. That's the largest number you could write in Greek. So the largest number times the largest number. So how many angels? Lots. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And then this is straight out of the Caesar hymnal. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven. Remember, you're in a house church of 12 people. You think you're in the minority and Revelation paints a picture. of No, no, no. You're actually in the majority. Every creature in heaven on earth saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped, and they said, amen. How's that hit you if you're in one of those little bitty churches? You're not alone. Such a great point. That's right. What else? Right? That's so good, exactly right. There's a little piece of you who hopes you don't get caught, right? Because there's, there's an edge to this, right? Right? I mean, this isn't just a nice piece of devotional literature about having warm fuzzies towards Jesus in your heart, correct? That's so good, what else? Yes, the one you're sure is losing is actually the one who wins, just like with our Savior. Exactly. My wife, I'm sorry, use the proper form of address. Can, can you grab the mic, Suze? <laughs> How aware were these small house churches of other small house churches? I don't know. I don't know. Are they aware? that other people are hearing this as well. From some of Paul's writings, they are aware of other house churches. I don't know how true it was in the cities of Revelation. It's a good question. Um, when we read something like this, and again, if you were here two weeks ago and we did this with Caesar Augustus, we're making the exact same point, but the reason we're making it again is because revelation is a very, very important message for us today, and that is just simply the idea that worship is political. Worship is political. The reason the church and the emperor used the same words was to make sure you knew you could only worship one. The great temptation, if you called Caesar one thing and Jesus another, Listen, the Roman Empire was full of people who worshiped other gods as long as you worship Caesar first. So using the language of Caesar and applying it to Jesus ensured that these tiny little communities could never succumb to the idea that they were able to worship Caesar and Jesus. So for them, the claim Jesus is Lord is not some claim about being warm in my heart. It's a claim about the false 
pretense of the Roman Empire and the reality that this little minority following a slaughtered lamb turns out to be those who actually were in the know and who will be victorious. See, when we hear the word worship, I think of the 20 minutes of singing we do. That we could take it or leave it. Even though Chris is amazing. And we've trivialized the idea, but in Revelation, Revelation is a, a war of worship. 10 times you're invited to bow down to the lamb and 11 times you're invited to bow down to the beast, the dragon, and the image of the beast. And so what you have encapsulated in the book of Revelation is the idea that, I mean, and it's exactly what you were saying, that the declaration that Jesus is Lord was treasonous to them, right? And when we think of politics, what do we think of? Division, power, good, what else? Corruption? What else do we think of? We hear the word politics. I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> Money, the way to get things done, that's how we conquer in the world. Oh, so good. Us versus them in control, absolutely. I think of donkeys and elephants, right? And what? Red and blue, that's right. What's Tennessee? Right. We're red. With a blue dot, as someone said. Yeah, could be. Unless California, all the Californians show up and change that. Yes, yes. But, but it's interesting to me that when we hear the word political, we think of two parties. And we've been discipled to think that fidelity to God is equated with fidelity to a party. And it is exactly that kind of blasphemy that Revelation goes after. We are so immersed in donkey and elephant politics that we've now made allegiance to a donkey or an elephant equivalent to allegiance to a lamb. And Revelation stands confronting the hearts of people that want to do that. See, worship isn't just the bit of thing that we do when we're singing. Worship is fidelity, it's allegiance. And it's political, my friends. The politics of the lamb cannot be captured by either donkey or elephant. Can we agree? Because the politics of the lamb are forgiveness and reconciliation and shalom seeking and justice bearing, right? That is the politics of the lamb. And Great, let's all have our political opinions. Hallelujah, that you and I live in a place where we're invited to give our opinion, right? Let's have all the opinions. Great, let's do it. But the idolatry comes when the church says allegiance to Jesus looks like this political position. That's just simply not true. Let's disagree vociferously, brothers and sisters. Worship is the rearranging of our identity and our allegiances. What's our identity? What's our identity, friends? Just shout it out. What's our identity? In Christ, yep, love, 
that'll work. Yes, we're beloved. Yes, we're invited into service for others. What else is part of our identity? Come on, intimacy with God. Yes, what else? Yes, we are forgiven and therefore offer forgiveness. Well, joy filled sometimes, but that should be a little more so probably. Messy? Yeah. What? Peculiar. What a great word that is. Yes, strange but not odd. Yes. So good. So good. Yeah, we, yeah, it turns out we do a pretty good job at peculiar here at our community. We don't succeed well. What? Yes, yes, we're learners. Our fundamental identity as Jesus followers is student. Absolutely. But none of that has anything to do with your policy on immigration or masks, correct? And to sit and to accuse other Jesus people of not being Jesus people if they disagree with you on a political position. That's blasphemy. Now we can disagree. How can you vote for this when I see the text teaching this? Great, let's have all of those discussions. We're not afraid of those. That's fantastic. We're supposed to be a community of difference. But we're never given permission to make those differences ultimate in the way that political discipleship happens today in our world. We have to be a place where you can be red and blue and purple and whatever, and we share a meal together because none of that is our ultimate identity. And it's not your ultimate identity either. See, when we make revelation just about, well, when's the rapture? We miss the true power of the book. Ma'am, are you looking at the clock right now? Because if you are, I don't blame you. And I think lots of people are. I have one and a half minutes as a suggestion. There's nothing that happens when we hit zero other than people will be like. All right, now. I mean, I want to keep going, but are there questions on this stuff? So many questions. All right, let's go. Let's take 10 minutes for questions. Now, am I some expert? Am I a political theorist? No, am I a cultural observer? Am I an Instagram influencer? No, I'm a student. No, I am a student of Jesus in a community of students of Jesus, correct? And the goal is to provoke conversation so that we come to the word and let it speak not just reinforce what we're already thinking. Cam. Yes, that's me. Um, so many, so many questions. So many questions. So many questions. Um, he still has his big Bible. Yeah, I forgot. That's so, awesome. You mentioned kind of in passing like this whole idea of like Revelation being a response to the cult of emperor worship. Yes. And you said like the, the church then would have seen like, oh, this is also the government that just killed Jesus. Yeah. Which got me thinking that when, as a 21st century American Christian, I don't necessarily think, oh, the Romans killed Jesus. Yeah. That's not my first thought. Yeah. Would that have been their first thought, or would they have thought maybe like we do in America, like, oh, the Jews killed Jesus? Oh, so good. Man, Kim, that's such a great question, and worthy of a longer answer than I can give. 
Around the time of Domitian is when Judaism and Christianity, the, the gift, the gift Domitian gave the church is, and it, it resulted in persecution increasingly, but he saw Christianity as different than Judaism. Judaism was afforded certain legal protections in Roman law. And as long as Christians were just thought to be another sect of Jews, they were, they were relatively safe. But when Christians were understood to be something different, they became politically vulnerable in ways that Jews had not been. Now, Revelation gets used in very anti-Semitic ways because the, in one of the churches it refers to a synagogue of Satan, like in persecution. And so, man, the history of, of Christian anti-Semitism is tragic and awful. The gospel writers are really clear that it was the religious leadership conspiring with Roman political leadership that killed Jesus. So the Jews, that no one would have understood the Jews as killing, uh, killing Jesus, except Christians who became anti-Semitic along the way. It was, it was certain aspects. That's why, that's why the gospel writers are always saying it's the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin. And Pilate is the representative of the Roman Empire, right? Pilate had to be convinced, so they both agreed, and that was where justice was dispensed. Great question, Cam. Seriously. All right, anything else? Anything you want to talk about? Were most of those house churches Gentiles or Jews? I think they were a mix of both. Now, we don't know exactly, so I'm not gonna, I, I don't know what ratio it would be, but there are enough Old Testament references to assume a Jewish, at least Jews in the audience, who would be able to interpret them for Gentiles. But the Old Testament is, is, isn't just encapsulated, but Revelation isn't just encapsulated in its Jewish imagery, it also has this imperial imagery that would have been readily understood by Gentiles too. So I personally think like Antioch, it was mixed at this time. We're looking at like 93, 94 perhaps for a date of revelation. And at this point, there was a good mix. So great question. Yes, Susie Lynn. Yeah, we got a bunch texted in. Okay, five minutes, how, how five. Did we, how did we get from John's intention of writing Revelation to what most people think now is a book about the end of the world? Oh, so good. Okay, holy moly. Um, the, the, let's call it the left behind view of Revelation, okay? Is the result of a theological system that was embraced and introduced in the 1800s called dispensationalism. Okay, premillennial dispensationalism was a theological system that had a focus on the end times as its centerpiece. This view became, it was, uh, John Darby was the one who began to popularize it, but it became very popular when it was centered in the Schofield Reference Bible. It was one of the first study Bibles ever in America. And so that was the view that was taught in the Schofield Reference Bible, a certain view of Daniel that tied into a certain view of Revelation. And then for us, that just became what Revelation was. So this understanding, the left behind understanding of Revelation is new and it's American. Now, it's in, infiltrated other places, but this didn't come to us from Europe, and this didn't come to us from the early church. How does our resistance of emperor worship then align with the Romans 13.5 instruction to submit to authority? 
Yes. Many of those Christians take the view that they do because of the modern prophetic opinion that the ruler has been appointed by God. Man, that's a whole sermon. The problem is we separate Romans 13 from Romans 12. And Romans 12 is all about not taking vengeance and leaving room for God to take vengeance. And then Paul uses the government as a way, as an example that, of God using others to execute vengeance. So Romans 13 isn't about unquestioning allegiance to whatever powers are there. The Romans 13 is about the government being one of the ways that, execute, that God executes justice in the world. So um, I actually think that the chapter division that introduces 13 from 12 is, is really damaging because 12 is so clear. This is, we, are, we are forbidden from personal vengeance. And that 13 introduces the idea that one of the ways that God, like justice is achieved in the world is through governments. Um, now, I think what's anointed by God is the idea of government, but I don't think you can get from that text individual personalities in government are chosen by God. I, I don't think there's any exegetical, I mean, and, and people will say, well, yeah, but wasn't that in the Old Testament? I'm like, well, yeah, that was, an, that was a covenant between the nation of Israel and Yahweh. It, has not, it does not involve Americans or enlightenment democracy, right? And so just the claim that someone's been anointed by God, man, I don't know that we have any exegetical or biblical support to say that this person's anointed by God or not. So I've heard people say, well, yeah, Trump was God's anointed, but they wouldn't say that about Biden. So, so is it just the people that agree with you that are anointed by God or what? You know, I mean, it's just, it, we've, we've come to a place, and I know this is super touchy to talk about, but we have to because we're discipled into animosity and demonization. We're literally, we can't talk to each other about any of this. And the church has to be a refuge, one of the last cultural refuge where you can share a meal with somebody you would totally disagree with politically and love and serve them. So good. Seth has a question back there too. Okay, five more minutes. That's the parental five minutes. You know what I mean by the parental five minutes? <laughs> when you tell your kids five minutes, but they don't have any concept of time. Hi, Mike. I'm sorry, Seth. All good. Um, so I guess my question is kind of personal a little bit. And yeah. so like in my observation of what I would call like the industrial Christianity or whatever you want to call it and however you want to generalize all the things that like land in that. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like this book, like Revelation is so challenging because it feels like we're just not, it's so anti-cultural. And I feel like Christianity is so ingrained and it, it almost feels secular to me more than it is yeah. um, Jesus-y. And I don't know what to do with it because I feel myself so intertwined. I feel like we're all so intertwined. What, what totally. Politics, all, the whole thing. Yep. And where, what do we do with it? How do we follow Jesus and live in a Americanized Christianity? Love it. Love it. And we know that there are some postures we can't take. One is complete withdrawal. One is demonization of all things American or capitalistic or whatever. Right? We're to be discerning together. 
And I love, Seth, I love, see, Revelation, the reason we make it toothless is so that we don't have to confront these questions. Wait until you see God's condemnation of Roman economics. Like, he condemns structural evil, racial evil, the slave trade, the exploitation of women, and the economic practices of the Roman Empire. And you're just like, oh, well, they were sinners. It was bigger than that. And so that naturally forces us into, dang, what does that look like for us, for me? So first of all, Seth, the fact you're even asking that question shows that we're reading the book rightly or we're allowing it to speak. Secondly, we have to learn the art of joyful noncompliance, right? We're not to just sit in judgment of the big old mean world out there, right? No one nags or is criticized into the kingdom, Jesus just spent time creating the more beautiful alternative. And that's our role. This whole thing is a dress rehearsal for the creating of the beautiful alternative. I don't know any of you what your politics are. I don't know what your socioeconomic status is, your ethnic background, your gender pref. I have no idea. And yet we are going to take a meal together as an act saying, these are my brothers and sisters because Jesus is my Lord. And that kind of solidarity is unique in American culture these days. So there is no to-do list other than becoming formed into the kind of person that joyfully doesn't comply with what is normal. So the goal of Revelation is for us to examine normal. Hey, it's normal to talk about the market as if it were a person. The market is scared. The market is confident. It's normal to have my sense of security in the world tied to my finances. It's normal to worry only about me and mine rather than anybody else. It's normal to think that Jesus of Nazareth exists only for my personal salvation and wants nothing else to do with the rest of my life. It's normal to think that our politics are actually the best way to do politics. So I don't have a great answer other than, yes, Seth, let's sit in that space for as long as possible. Because the minute, I, I think, I'm just speaking for me, but the minute I'm convinced I've got it nailed and I can sort everybody into great categories, I think we've missed the lamb right there. And so I sit in this weird spot of not feeling like I'm at home with the donkey crowd and I'm not home with the elephant crowd. And I'm certainly not at home with the zealous shouting of the true believers on either side. And so I'm just, I'm looking for a tribe of people who just want first and foremost to be attached to the lamb and his way of doing life in the world. Because I think that's the way that wins. Last question, young lady. And you? Okay, you get the last one, and then we are out because we are over. Okay. Oh, Hello. Yes. Thank you so much for asking the question. Yes, so I feel like um, I grew up reading Revelation and being freaked out by it. Yes. For sure. Yes, and, um, me too. I also feel like this, like this series has been really interesting, but I feel like if you're not a Christian with the resources that we have right now in America to understand, like, the Roman history and the context, blah, 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 um, and you just, let's say, you receive the Bible, you read it, and you're <laughs> totally. like, what the heck is this? Like, totally. how do I interpret it? Yes. Like, I feel like if you're, 
you wouldn't be able to understand the book the way we're understanding it now yeah. unless you were a Christian in the time that it was written and you received the letter yep. or you're literally us today with the context and the resources for it. Right. And I also feel like the book it's kind so of for me is such a turnoff to like, and for non-Christians, it's like, ew, what the heck is this? Right. Like, it doesn't even make sense. Like there's beats and stuff like that. Totally. So I just don't understand like why it was included in the Bible even. <laughs> like literally, I just feel like even like from my non-Christian, like Jewish friends who know about totally. the Bible and like whatever, are, they're just turned off to Christianity because of this book. Oh, so, yeah. 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 That's, I, why, oh, yeah. Just why? That's my question. Why? <laughs> yeah. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, seriously. Let's, let's preach next week, you and I together, trying to answer that question. I mean, I don't know why. I, I, think, I think the Bible is messy on purpose. And I think part of its messiness is the fact that it's historically based. So we read about the wars of you know, Israel conquering and annihilating tribes of other people, and we read about weird, like, don't cook something in its own milk, or what, I mean, you're just like, what in the world is this? Absolutely. And it comes to us as this very messy, very ancient story that we have to work to understand. For me, one of the reasons why I think it's good that it comes to us this way is because it's the, it's the classic reminder that our theology doesn't save us, right? People have had bad theology, me too. I just don't know where it is, right? I'm 30% of everything I say is wrong. I just don't know what 30%, or maybe more, I don't know. But, but, but yes, people who've read the letter wrongly, does bad theology harm? Absolutely, and, and it's been used as fear-mongering, and that provokes real harm. But that doesn't mean we're still not rescued disciples of Jesus, right? So on the one hand, I'm comfortable with it being messy because I think what God's interested in is an authentic human partnership and not perfect clarity. But on the other hand, I recognize, and for me too, the Bible is not a source always of inspiration, but of confusion. And like a lot of the reason people don't buy the Jesus thing is because of the Bible. In response, I would simply say, I think they're... Um, I think what we've done to the Bible and with the Bible isn't the Bible's fault, but it's about us and our hunger for power and control over others. So I don't fault the Bible because I think when you come at the Bible humbly, it does clear up in some ways, but that doesn't save us. Having a perfect understanding doesn't save us, but it allows us to have discernment right now. So yes to ooh, Totally agree. And yes to the fact that it stirs us up and winds us up and confuses us and deconstructs us and all of those things. I don't think those are bad things. Particularly for an American church that has been pretty sure it's had its theology nailed for the last couple hundred years, you know? So not a great answer, but a great question. Thank you very much. Young lady, last one. Chris, why don't you come, come on up? How did Christianity grow after, like, what we're talking about? Oh, oh! That's just good parenting. I mean, come on. All right. All right, here's the reason. All right? 
I'm going to make a couple of jokes that your parents will understand and explain later. The early church didn't hand out gospel tracts, nor did they threaten people with hell if they didn't believe in Jesus. The early church formed communities that were so different from the Roman Empire that people couldn't believe the message was real until they went into those communities and tasted it for themselves. Now, here's what I mean. COVID, kind of a bummer, correct? Okay, pandemics, there were lots of those in the first century. And Christians, when everyone else would leave a city, all the powerful would flee, all the medical people would flee, Christians would come into a city full of plague victims and minister to them, even though they themselves would get sick. One of the things Romans allowed is if you didn't want your baby, you could set it outside the city walls and slave traders could come and get it or animals would do whatever with it. Christians would come and adopt those little babies into their families and raise them. (coughs) The early Christian church empowered women like nothing in Roman culture. All of these are examples, (coughs) pardon me, of how beautiful these little communities were, and it's that, that's what made them so compelling. So our goal, and I hope you never, ever, ever stop believing that we can be this, our goal is to become like one of those early communities. So good. So to that end, we now engage in community formation. We are gonna take the Lord's Supper together as a bunch of people who don't have everything in common. We are gonna carry each other's burdens by taking pieces of paper and pens and just writing down things that are weighing on us so that we can pray together as a family. We, (coughs) excuse me, so sorry, I'm out of water. We are um, gonna cultivate generosity. The church doesn't need your money, brothers and sisters. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that should be a note. That should be a note on that thing. The reason we give to a community is for us and our freedom and our liberation and our declaration of allegiance. And then lastly, we're gonna sing songs and they're not just songs, they're ways of refreshing our lips and our imaginations and aligning ourselves with the personal work of Jesus, all right? You guys are champs. Thanks for hanging in there through all of that. Let's stand together. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, now we come to you, Lord, through sacrament, through service, through worship. We pray that you would stir uh, in us an image of how beautiful and marvelous and gigantic your vision for us is. Lord, may we look like people who are committed to the slain lamb. In the name of our Christ, amen.